for a moment, turn with me to um, Jude. Let's just find the book of Jude, which is right smack beside or to the left of Revelation. <clears throat> I don't have the time to go into all of this. I'm just going to say to you that Jude, in my opinion, was literally um, the brother of James, who literally was the brother of Jesus. So um, Jude and James have some similarities in the writing style and the verbiage <clears throat> and uh, concerns. And so I'm, not, I'm just not going to go into all of that. Did I say J uh, James or did I say John? I don't mean to say John. I mean, Jude would be uh, the brother of James, who is also half-brother of Jesus. Uh, James and Jude would be, <clears throat> yeah, Jacob. So, so in Jude, uh, there's only one chapter, so I don't have to tell you which chapter, but there's only one chapter. I'm going to just, um, for, just for clarity's sake, just go uh, to verse number one and read. And I want you to hear something in this that we're going to just sort of tap into. Oh, I said, let's go, let's go one through four. Uh, gosh, if you guys were good. If I knew you were going to bless me like you did this morning, I would have prepared better. I don't know. <laughs> but I, I am in a mystery, and so I'm just going to share some verses and some thoughts, and we'll just see what, uh, what the Lord is doing here. Okay, and I know lunch is coming. Okay, so here we go. Jude, uh, chapter 1. There is only one chapter. Verse number 1. And it starts out with the word Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. To those, by the way, uh, the scriptures tell us that James and his brothers and his sisters did not really believe in Jesus until after the resurrection. After the resurrection, they, they had to let go of their sibling rivalry <laughs> and say, oh my gosh, you know, he was God. <laughs> so, but after the resurrection, it was cleared up for them. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. That's a mouthful right there. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. And um, Stephanie, for your sake, I think uh, he used the word mercy because he's thinking, of, he's thinking Jewishly. He's not thinking grace like Paul, the apostle. Uh, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. So I think he's actually thinking of what we would call grace. Uh, verse number three. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation. Can I just stop for a second and interrupt myself and just say, can you imagine that, you know, 50, 60, 70, 75, maybe 80 uh, years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and people are coming to faith. They're not firsthand eyewitnesses of Jesus. They, they're hearing about it, and the church movement is occurring. The kingdom is expanding. And what would the normal thing to do but to get a hold of anyone who was an eyewitness and say, would you tell me what you saw? Would you tell me what you know? Because, um, you know, here we are. We're in the midst of our Judaism and we're trying to accommodate Jesus. I mean, it's it that that is a big deal. It's a big it's a big right turn. And and, and so if you can get a hold of anyone who was there, who saw Jesus, tell me what he was really like. I don't want the folklore. I want to know what he was really, really like. 
I'm just going to say, that's why you and I need to study the Gospels. Because they'll tell you what he was really, really, really like. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Okay. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend. The church is really good at contending for things. I don't want to focus on that right now. That you contend earnestly. Okay, that's going to create some passion right there, right? For the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. So he's saying, okay, I wanted to write about our common salvation. I wanted to visit you in person. But I feel this urgency to tell you about the faith that you have dwelling in you. You don't need to have faith in me. You need to have faith in him. And that faith that you have was first of all handed down to the saints. Now we have to define who the saints are and we'll do that in just a moment. But let's just say it would be the apostles and everybody in the upper room. Let's just start there, okay? Um, so uh, you need to contend earnestly for the faith which was, and I want to just emphasize, once for all. And English fails us because this is one time I'm appealing to you that you would take what was one time done in the city of Jerusalem on a one particular date through one particular man, Jesus Christ. There was one particular event that happened, and out of that event, one time for all time, for all of mankind, there was a salvation that was given. I can tell you're excited, but I'm really, you know, like, so he's saying there isn't multiple gospels. There is one gospel, and you should really contend for that. The thing that, that was deposited in you needs to be held on to and given away. But when we give it away, let's make sure we're giving the right thing away. And that's where, that's where the mystery comes in, because I believe with all my heart that we're living in a time where we actually have to go back and say, all right, in the, in the 16th century, there was a reformation. We had lost something, and it needed to be regained. Thank God for John Huss. Thank God for Martin Luther and Tyndale and on and on, the men and women of God who fought for a reforming of the church, and it wasn't just the church structure but what the church was teaching and what had come in and what had come to be wasn't what was once delivered to the saints. And so there was a need for a reformation in the 16th century. Thank God for it. Now, let's just fast forward to the 17th century, uh, men and women escaping from uh, the grips of uh, Catholicism and Anglican thought and uh, for other reasons, but let's just take, let's just go with the religious freedom principle escaped to the new world and carried with them their new understanding of the reformation of this salvation by God's grace through faith alone. They carried that with them and the pre believing of the priesthood of all believers. Now I'm going to fast forward to say that 
that, but they had not, you know, Martin Luther and they had not yet dealt with issues such as infant baptism and the succession of Peter and things like, there were things that had not yet been actually dealt with. And, and so, you know, um, church history and Western culture will, will show us that, um, you, you know, that, that out of the Reformation, there were still some things missing. So in the, the 20th century or the early 1900s, there was something going on in the evangelical and denominational world where there's, they're looking at the world conditions ahead of them and looking at the harvest and recognizing that there was much to be done, much work to be done, and they needed some way to fast-track people into the mission field and to bring in a great harvest because now it was a new century. Now is a turning of a century. Now it was the 1900s, and oh my gosh, Jesus has to be returning any minute because it's the 1900s, you know, and far removed from Reformation. And uh, there, were, there became sort of a consensus, and I'm going to just admit that as someone who's grown up in the Pentecostal movement, someone who's fully embraced it and fully invested in it, I can say honestly, there's, there's been the good and the bad. One of the bad things is that because we, only be, because we believe in our history, we don't look at everybody else's history, but the primary history that we can say is that while God was moving around the world to return the Holy Spirit to the church, he certainly moved in Azusa Street in uh, southern Los Angeles, in uh, Southern California in 1906 through 1909, which began a big movement. And now we use the phrase Pentecostal like nothing. But before that, to say we have a Pentecostal faith would be like, you're making me uncomfortable, you know. But now they were they fully embraced. People knew what that meant. And I don't think it's a, the best term. So I'm going to now fast forward and say that we are in another century. Another century has turned. And we're in a, the early days of just, uh, just a little bit of, of 100 years beyond that. And the harvest still needs to be reached. People are still in desperate need of the gospel, and, and it looks like we're not any further ahead. In fact, it looks like the job is getting even larger, so I'm going to just say, is it possible that there's something that needs to be added back to the church that was there in the beginning? The Pentecostal thing was there all along. Salvation by faith, that was there all along, but it had been dropped. It had been lost. Does that make sense? So, so I'm just asking myself, is there something that is missing, and what I've stumbled onto is what, in Azusa Street, they called it the apostolic faith, and that was the way for them to identify that they believe that what God did on the day of Pentecost, God would do again. So there were some people who embraced the phrase, there were other people who were scared to death by the phrase, and I understand both camps, and I appreciate and value both camps. I'm not trying to criticize one as better or over the other. I'm just saying that if, if, if we receive the Holy Spirit when we're born again, and that's a part of what God uses to create a new nature in us, then I'm just going to go back to what Jesus taught. And he said, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I don't know about you, but I, it, it changes everything to know that Jesus is with me. I thought he would like pack his bags 
and walk beside me. But he, what he actually did is said, no, I'm going to slip into the spirit. The spirit that is, was on Jesus slipped into me. And now Jesus resides within me. Well, you know, his spirit resides within me. He resides in heaven at the right hand of the Father. Praise God, that's where he's at, holding the heavens open and just living. He's a testimony that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. <laughs> anyone, anyone, anyone can be saved. No one's beyond being saved. In fact, I just want to say that loud right here, right now. If you think it's not going to work for you, I'm telling you, that is a sign that the adversary is afraid it is going to work for you. You should just say yes to Jesus. Yeah. All right. All right. So that being said, if I would just tweak it a little bit and say, what if the church... What if the church were to become apostolic? And before we jump out the window, I, I don't know about you, but every time someone says, let's find ourselves an apostle, you know, or let's start identifying apostles, or how can we recognize apostles? What is the qualifications? What is, the, what is it that you need to have? And, and my experience has been, it's time to run out the room when they start talking that way, you know? But that's because we're trying to identify a noun. We're trying to identify a person with a, with a, a, a gifting, an office. And while I embrace all uh, true apostles, small a, because, I, you know, God has given to the church, not just prophets, not just pastors, not just teachers and evangelists, but, but also apostles. I mean, so it is our birthright to have them. I just know that when you start looking for them, you, you step away from a Christ-centered position, which I believe is the thing that is missing in our world today. It's time for the church to pick up the mantle of the early church where everything was Christ-centered. Okay. Um, for example, you, you know, we could have a gospel that is a social gospel. We could have a gospel that is a social gospel justice gospel we we could have a gospel that is a prosperity gospel and you know what every one of those would have a legitimate place in in the the life and the experience of the church but i believe that the gospel the true gospel the faith the one that was once delivered to the saints one time for all time that faith if we're going to hand that on to another generation if when jesus comes back what is what he sees in the believer's heart is that same faith it's going to require you and me to recognize what the early church was is that jesus was more than a great teacher more than a wonderful man he was even I don't want to say more than the Messiah, but he was the Messiah, but he was the Savior, but he is also the Son of God. And God, in his own intention, decided that he would bring glory to his own name. The Father would bring glory to his own name by exalting his Son. And by exalting Jesus Christ, I think that you can actually say we switch from a noun, apostle, till we begin to switch over to an adjective where, where the structure 
if I can use uh, Jesus' phrase, he said, uh, oh, you guys, you all have wineskins out there. And you know what happens if you have an old wineskin laying around and you pour new wine into it. What's going to happen? When that thing ferments, when it blows up, when the belly of that thing just gets larger and larger, it bursts and you lose the wineskin and you lose the wine. And I'm here to tell you today that the Pentecostal movement is in danger, in my opinion, of becoming an inflexible, immovable wineskin that God may have to say, look, you guys either get with it or I might have to raise another one up. You know what I'm saying? We don't want to become so unflexible, so, so rigid that we can't accommodate the new wine of the Spirit. Now, that doesn't mean that the wineskin needs to become absolutely loose like jelly, and there's no structure, there is no foundation to it at all. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that we can outgrow our wineskin. And I'm not suggesting today that we should, and I'm not suggesting that I'm leaving the assemblies or I'm leaving this movement. I'm not suggesting any of that. I'm suggesting that you and I need to embrace a mystery and say, let's go back and look at what Jesus taught. What did he teach his disciples? What did his disciples teach to the other disciples? What did the church begin to teach? If we look at that, I think that we're in a safe zone. But I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to save you some time. It's Christ-centered. It's absolutely Christ-centered. I'm going to go out on a ledge here and offend some people, but I don't mean to. I don't, I, I don't even want to say that, that it becomes Bible-centered or Scripture-centered, even though there's no way that we're going to find the truth with, by letting go of the Scriptures. I think that we're going to have to go back and search the Scriptures again and look at them and visit them again and say, is it possible, Jesus, that you want to do something even more in the church today? I'll use uh, Randy Clark's phrase, and I think maybe he stole it from the vineyard. I'm not sure, but there must be more. There must be more. Oh, of course there is. There's always more. But now this is not more for the in my. I'm not suggesting that Randy or anyone else is uh, suggesting this. I'm not suggesting that by more, we just mean more of God. Of course, there's always more. You can have more relationship uh, with God if you choose to, if you take a journey with him. He'll, he'll, he'll lead you into more. But I mean more as in, is there anything that is missing that would help us advance the faith and keep us true to the end so that what we hand on to the next generation is the same faith that Jesus handed to the disciples, that the disciples handled, handed to other disciples who handed it to a church in an upper room, who handed it to 3,000, who handed it to 2,000, who all of a sudden it was multiplied into multitudes. I, I, I don't know about you, but I, I want to make sure that on my watch, on our watch, that's what we hand off. So that's why I'm just going to use the phrase, I'm going to stick with it, that, that God wants to resurrect the apostolic church. And how can you tell that it's apostolic? Number one, it will be Christ-centered. Number two, it will be love-motivated. Number three, it will be spirit-empowered. And 
number four, the good news that we proclaim, we don't just proclaim good news, we become good news. And that's why we can read in the book of Acts things that makes your heart long for something that has been missing from the church for a while. So, who knows that in this awkward season that we're into, these unprecedented times, maybe God has no intentions of returning us to precedented times. Maybe what he's actually going to do is force the church into a slightly different structure. And that's the question that I think remains to be answered. So in the next, uh, if you give me 10 minutes, I want to take you through some scriptures. Let's go to Luke chapter 9. We're going to start with Jesus. Let's just start with Jesus. I don't want to start with the church. I want to start with Jesus. What did Jesus say? What did Jesus teach? I'm going to tell you, if you read the whole gospel, he said some things that are politically very incorrect. He said some things that wouldn't fly. It didn't fly in his culture. It didn't fly in the religious world. It didn't fly in the political world. But I'm going to just tell you something in Luke chapter 9. And, and, and be, I'm going to preface it by saying this. I want to remind the church that Jesus had this occasion when he looked at his disciples. And he said, beware of the leaven of, the Her- of Herod which is a political spirit, and beware of the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees, a religious spirit. Now, leaven to a Jew would represent sin, but more importantly, corruption. Let me just say to our country, let's deal with our corruption. Let's root it out. Let's bring the light of day. Let's welcome it because that's how we have freedom and liberty. I, 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 I'm concerned because like in the absence of enough tissue paper, we can't take the Constitution and make it toilet paper. I'm concerned about that. Because that's what guarantees religious freedoms. And I'm going to just remind you that religious oppression starts with identifying a people group. And the very first thing that happens is you start calling them names. Let me tell you, when, 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 the go- when a government begins to identify a people group and then call them a name, you've already begun to slide down the slippery slope of religious oppression. So there, there's a reason to beware of the spirit of Herod or the leaven of Herod, that political spirit. There's also a reason to be wary of uh, the religious spirit, such as with the scribes and the Pharisees, which Jesus had most of his trouble until until his conflict with the Romans. Most of the trouble he had was with religious people and their understanding of not scripture but tradition And they had elevated tradition above scripture. And so they were missing both the heart and the context of true biblical guidelines. And so I'm going to just tell you whether we're talking about a religious spirit or a political spirit. Either one of those spirits will kill you if they need to. 
guys just spent time honoring me. I mean, I, I'm trying to be nice, but I'm, I'm just... <clears throat> Thank you. I just want... I just... I, I, you know that the church needs to have a little bit of backbone again. In fact, the early church prayed for boldness. In fact, they said, you know the thing that got us in so much trouble? Do it again. Yeah. Okay. All right. Luke 9. Let's take a look, Jeremy. Luke 9. Did I say 10 minutes? Luke 9, verse number 1. And he, Jesus, called the 12. Those 12, those 12 had names. I'm not going to take the time to go through their names. He called the 12 together. And he gave them power and authority. Can I just stop and say one of the things that, that opened the... It wasn't just Jesus healing and his, his demonstration of signs and wonders. It wasn't just the signs and the wonders that captured their attention, although that did get their attention. It wasn't just the miracles and the healings. It, 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 and it wasn't even his compassion for people that, that really motiv motivated the people to take notice to Jesus. But if you read through the Gospels with a critical eye, you'll see that actually the thing that got their attention the most is that he was one who had an authority. They recognized an authority in Jesus that they had not seen in religious leaders, they had not seen in rabbis, they had not seen it in priests, they had not seen it in a high priest, they hadn't seen it in the government, they hadn't seen it in the Romans, they hadn't seen it in Alexander the Great. We see a lot of people with a lot of testosterone and a lot of venom and a lot of hatred, but they did not see anyone like Jesus who had raw authority. <clears throat> Why not? He speaks and worlds are created. And he, this Jesus, called the twelve together, and he gave them power and authority. Right there you go. It's transferable, folks. Power and authority over all the demons to deal with diseases. By the way, I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say most of what we call uh, societal issues are actually demonic issues. We're talking about, you know, entrenched principalities and powers and rulers of darkness, I really believe that uh, much of what we're... So you can't reason with a demon. You just can't say, come on, Mr. Demon. Get smart here. Jesus is bigger than you. You got to go. That, that's not how it's going to work. They recognize power. They recognize authority. And power and authority comes from an apostolic movement. Suddenly, God is enthroned. Suddenly, Jesus is exalted on high, and he's reigning in the church. And no one's trying to be the top dog. It's Jesus. Everybody's trying to make room for Jesus. And when Jesus is in the room, there is power. There is authority. It's in his name. So over all the demons and all uh, to heal diseases. In verse number 2, he sent them out, the 12, to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, neither a staff, nor a bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not even have two tunics apiece. <clears throat> this guy, you know, Jesus obviously had never taken a trip to Kenya. I take way more than that. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. 
And as, you, the, as for those who do not receive you, as you go out from the city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Departing. They began going throughout the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was happening, and he was greatly perplexed, as he should be, because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead. Oh, he had not seen anything yet, talking about rising from the dead. And by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others the, that one of the prophets of old had risen again. Herod said, I myself had John beheaded. But who is this man about whom I hear such things? And he kept trying to see him. Wormleysburg, Central Pennsylvania, Harrisburg. Jesus is coming to your town. He's coming with great power and great authority. Verse number 10, when the apostles returned, they gave an account of him to all that they had I'm sorry, when the apostles returned, they gave an account to him of all that they had done, taking them with him. He withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida, but the crowds were aware of this and followed him and welcomed them, and he began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. I love that testimony. While we're in Luke, let's just turn to Luke chapter 24. <clears throat> Luke 24. Those of you who are online, please grab your Bible and just take a little tour with us. In Luke 24, verses um, 44 through 49. Luke 24, 44 through 49. Now he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. This is Jesus after his resurrection. That all things which were written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Notice that Jesus says, you know, what we would call Moses, the books of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. All of these spoke about Jesus and all those things had to be fulfilled. And verse number 45, and this is where I'm going to ask you to end with me today. Not, not with verses, I got some more verses, but here's where I want to go at the end of the day. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. That's going to be our prayer. God, I, 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 I'm not discarding my theology, but I want to see a truth that might go beyond my theology. In verse number 46, and he said to them, this, Thus it is written that Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in, the, in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Okay, just one more spot. Let's go to Acts chapter 1. You know, uh, Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and also Acts. So we'll just jump into the rest of the story in the book of Acts chapter 1, verse 1. The first account I composed, Theophilus, that about all that Jesus began to do and to teach, which, by the way, he, he acted, and then out of his actions, he taught. <laughs> okay, something to think about there. 
until the day when he was taken up into heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To those, or to these, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things uh, concerning the kingdom of God. And gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Um, verse number eight, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you shall be witnesses. You should be my witness both, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. I'm going to just go over into verse number uh, 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which was near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. These all with one mind, continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And at this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering of about 120 people, persons, which were together and said, Brethren, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit for." told by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he is, was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. And then he goes into the description of what happened to Judas. And what Peter does is he urges that someone fill Judas's spot. So who do we have in the upper room? We have the original 12 minus Judas plus Matthew. And the women, the women who were supporting Jesus, encouraging him, those whom Jesus had honored and healed, those who were contributing to his care and keeping, and Mary, and his brothers and sisters, all together, about 120 people. And when the day of Pentecost fully came, the Holy Spirit fell on all of these people. Then, right out of that, the next thing that happens is a crowd gathers and says, what in the world does this mean? And Peter becomes Peter, the one that we call the apostle. And he begins to speak and say, these men are not drunk, they're not crazy, but this is what Joel talks about. And he immediately runs to the gospel of Jesus Christ so he answers their question. He doesn't get stuck in Pentecost. He pro the Pentecost propelled him into a Christ-centered lifestyle and worship. And now where he, you know, he saw Jesus. Jesus was over there. He's feeding a multitude. He saw Jesus. He was over there uh, uh, perhaps healing the sick. Or he saw Jesus as he healed Peter's own mother-in-law. He saw Jesus over there. He's the Jesus that Jesus 
sometimes was confronted by, sometimes questioned by, but that was Jesus. And then he saw Jesus crucified. Then he saw him resurrected. And now the spirit that rested on Jesus came and dwelt inside of Peter. And Peter says, that Jesus, he's the one that we preach. That Jesus, he's the one of which the scriptures testify. And he begins reorienting the whole Jewish world to Jesus. Would you please stand with me? So that faith, that faith, we can return to it by returning to the Gospels, by returning to the book of Acts. For me as a Gentile, I think that Paul helps in Romans. I think it helps. It's like the other side of the story, the Gentile side. And we didn't even, I don't have time to tell you to go into the fact that by Acts chapter 10, Gentiles were getting saved. I mean, these guys, they didn't keep Sabbath. They were not circumcised. So maybe God was accepting Israel and they had already been circumcised. They were keeping Sabbath. They had that lazy day that uh, N.T. Wright talks about. They kept Sabbath. In fact, they sparred with Jesus over Sabbath. They kept circumcision. Of course, they're the children of God. And of course, it would be right that the Spirit of God would fall on them. But all of a sudden, lo and behold, to their surprise and amazement is that uncircumcised, unclean Gentiles were suddenly cleansed by the Spirit of God and the blood of Jesus Christ as they received the same message and the same testimony that they had received. And now the gospel jumped into the Gentile world. By Acts chapter 13, missions are going into the surrounding countryside. By Acts 15, Antioch became the center of the of the spiritual world's gravity. It shifted from Jerusalem up to up to Antioch, over in Lebanon, for goodness sake, or Syria, I'm sorry, over into Syria, the gospel had moved into pagan territory, and from there went up into Asia Minor, and into Europe, and then on over to America, and around the world. This thing is absolutely transferable. 